Welcome to Quick Clarity, the podcast where we talk about all things 3C. For those of you tuning in for the first time, 3C is the talentism model for understanding why confusion exists, how to turn that confusion into clarity and productivity, and what happens when we ignore confusion and let it harden into certainty. Each week, I talk to the founder of Talentism, Jeff Hunter, about the questions we see our clients dealing with and his latest thoughts on the state of humans, business, and the world. Okay, Jeff, I'm excited to get started today as I sit here in my closet (laughs) for folks that are listening. I hope you enjoy the insulation you're getting from all of my uh, winter clothes. And um, today, we are going to talk about uh, one of the the core topics we discuss here on Quick Clarity, which is confusion. So let's start off, Jeff, by explaining to people when talentism uses the term confusion, uh, what do we mean? And and in particular, why is it not bad or good? You know, usually in, in English, I think when we say confusion, someone's confused, I feel confused, it has a negative connotation. Um, but for us, it's just a, it's a description of a particular reality that happens to humans all the time. So help us understand what do we mean when we say confusion? Yeah. So first of all, always great to be back here on a Monday morning with you, Angie. Um, thank you for taking the time. And to those who are listening or reading, thank you for your continued support. Uh, and we hope this is all very helpful to you. Yeah. So confusion, I love the way you teed that up because... For us, uh, confusion doesn't have a sort of value overlay to it. It doesn't, it's not about bad or good. It's not about any of those things. It is a fundamental reality of human experience. It is how humans experience the world. And when I say humans, I'm very confident in saying all humans, even humans who have lesions on the brain in particular areas, et cetera, confusion is an endemic experience to being a human being. And so just like saying breathing is good or bad, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, having fingers is good or bad, it doesn't make a lot of sense. This is just a fundamental, uh, a, the fundamental nature of human beings. And it's, a, it's an important thing. It's not a little thing. And when you care about learning the way we do, it is the thing. Um, so the reason it exists, if you think about it from, let's say, a evolutionary biology or primatology sort of lens, and here at Talentism, we love our science and we love our scientific method. And so we're always trying to ground in peer review science. We're trying to ground in logic. We're trying to ground in first principle thinking. And what I'm about to describe in the world of science is called the just so story. In other words, like nobody listening to this uh, podcast or reading this is was there at the moment this all happened. So it's a logical explanation that fits the evidence. But as science continues to explore, we'll learn new things. So this seems to be true right now. And, and who knows what we discover in the future. That'll be exciting to to figure out what we as a species figure out about ourselves. but. The just so story, at least talentism tells itself, is what a species has to do is it has to live 
long enough to procreate. That is the biological imperative that every living creature on earth has. doesn't matter whether you're a centipede or a tree or a person or a bonobo. doesn't matter. The biological imperative is survive and thrive long enough to be able to procreate. And in the case of human beings, because of the particular nature of how we do that, um, because we're bipedal, et cetera, then we also want to survive and thrive long enough to raise our young because our young will be very uh, fragile and at risk to the environment. So, So our brains fundamentally exist to enable the biological imperative, and our brains do that in a very particular way. Our brains model the future we think will lead to the optimal goal of the biological imperative, and then we experience things that are different than that model. Okay, and a model is just a, like a set of rules that describe what we're expecting. And it's all unconscious, so you can't go in and like download the rule set. It's uh, impressions, intuitions, um, habits, different things that our mind uses to expend the least amount of energy possible in order to get the greatest possible gain. And so our minds have these models, and these models are in there, and they're constantly not only predicting the future, but sort of morphing our experience and changing our experience in order to like bring it into coherence with that model. And then at some point, something happens that doesn't make sense, given what that model is predicting. And when that happens, we get confused. So confusion is like at the very root of experience. Confusion is either we're sleepwalking or we're confused is by and large how to think about it. Sleepwalking in that things are by and large going the way we thought they would. And by think, I mean level of unconscious, not active thinking. Or we're getting confused. And the confusion has a couple of elements to it that are really important to understand. First of all, confusion in the way we use it and the way we describe it is is describing an unconscious phenomena that leads to a feeling, not a conscious phenomena that leads to a thought. Okay, so this is super important because thinking is pretty slow and we have a lot of, like if you, if you were, let's say, 100,000 years ago, you're walking along in the um, African Serengeti and there's a rustling in the bushes. I use this example all the time, probably too much. But uh, there's a rustling in the bushes and your brain, in order to achieve its biological imperative, that big goal it's got, has got to make a pretty good guess about what that rustling is. And so the guesses could be, hmm, it could be the wind or it could be, you know, I don't know, like a meerkat or something, something that's harmless, or it could be a lion or it could be a leopard, right? So it could be death. It could be existential. It could be something that's coming to hurt you and prevent you from achieving your biological imperative. And so your mind doesn't have a lot of time to figure that out. So it's going to apply a rule set, a model, to what is the best action to take here to achieve the biological imperative. And typically, that is fight, flight, or freeze, right? Those are the three fundamental types of actions we take in threat. And you don't think your way to that. You act your way to that. You feel and then act. And so there's this immediate feeling we get we, in our endocrine system with adrenaline flowing in and we feel that like steel taste at the top of our mouth where our pupils get narrow. We focus in just on that bush. All of a sudden, our peripheral vision goes away. 
all these autonomic physiological reactions happen to get us real focused on that threat and trigger us into a fight, flight, or freeze sort of response. And there's lots of ways the brain does that. We're not going to belabor that right now. But this whole thing is heightening awareness of unpleasantness. It is, not, it, is, it is not a pleasant feeling to be in that moment. It is an unpleasant feeling that creates a whole bunch of tension in our body that has to be resolved. And that's what you want, right? You want the resolution through you're going to be stronger in the fight than you thought you were going to be. You're going to run faster than you thought you could run. Or you're going to be absolutely positively still, much stiller than you thought you could be. Breathing's low, everything. And that's because your body is tuning you to have the optimal response to that, to that threat. And so confusion is this thing that exists. It exists in everybody. It happens all the time, every day. If you're not confused, you're not paying attention. In other words, like sometimes people sleep through the day or they go on a vacation where they drink a lot of Mai Tais and they just sit there. Not a lot that can confront your mental model at that point, so you're probably not confused. But in work, in the world of work, what we care about, where we do our, our jobs, um, it's constantly filled with these expectations don't meet experience sort of, sort of experiences. And they're unpleasant. And they force you into fight, flight, or freeze sort of reactions. And from that unpleasantness, you're seeking to get back to something called stasis, which is your mind wants to get back to the point where it's sending you an all clear. It's saying the threat is abated. It is no longer here. You have either fleed successfully, you have fought off the predator, or your freezing has been successful in enabling the predator to avoid you and move on. You have successfully navigated that threat and you are now back to safety so that you can continue to survive and thrive in order to enable the biological imperative, that big goal. And that's just the thing that's happening to everybody every day. And it was the same 100,000 years ago as it is today. The difference between those two is today's a lot worse than 100,000 years ago. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to people when I say that, because if you look at all the like high-level markers of human success, we're a lot better off today than we were 100,000 years ago. A lot better. Our mortality, we live longer, we have more safety, or we don't um, bury our children as much. By every marker of what uh, humans should care about, both as biological entities and as social creatures, we are much better off. But the world of today is much, much more complex than that world 100,000 years ago. It requires more of us to be thriving today than it did 100,000 years ago. Not because food and the things that are basic necessities for us in order to thrive are less available, they're obviously much more available, but because we have so many more confusing signals around us about what the world should be and what we expect of the world. And so confusion is endemic. It is in every part of our lives. It is in every part of our business. It feels terrible. Many people describe it as like persistent anxiety when it gets acute. You can call that a pan panic attack or an anxiety attack. It's in every part of our lives. It's animating a lot of our behaviors. It's endemic inside of our businesses. 
it is both the thing, not a thing, it is the thing that businesses must confront successfully, especially fast growth or fast change businesses. Businesses that depend on change, which is the root of confusion, businesses that depend on change are, have to become confusion experts. So that's what confusion is, and, and we can talk about what to do about that, et cetera, but that's confusion in a nutshell. And that that was tremendous, Jeff. I think it you know it really took us through the anatomy of confusion, watching it happen on the Serengeti, why it's so important to human survival. So let's just recap for a second because I'd really like folks who listen to be able to hold on to this concept of confusion and see it in their own experiences um, and 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 think of it in a modern context. So, I think what I'm hearing you say is that confusion is the moment when our mental maps for how we navigate safely through our experience, right? Our expectations of how we move through the world, pursuing that subconscious but highly orienting goal of surviving, thriving, and procreating. When those mental maps that have always ferried us safely through our experience get challenged by something, something that presents a threat to our experience. And it's easy to think about sort of, you know, the human that was, uh, you know, existing on the Serengeti uh, tens of thousands of years ago, uh, uh, experiencing real physical threat to their safety. But I think what I hear you saying is that we as humans today experience all sorts of threats that are subtle, and that feel very different because they may not be overt, evident threats to our safety. But here's the rub. They elicit the same or a very similar response within us, which is that experience of confusion. Again, it's not a bad thing, though it may feel unpleasant. To, so can we talk a little bit about um, what some of those modern day confrontations to our mental maps or, or threats to our feeling of safety might be in a work environment? What are some things you hear people say that make you go, oh, yeah, that's confusion? Yeah, great question. So there's a lot of study around this. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to again caveat this, that I'm going to be describing data and I'm going to be describing phenomena that is not universal, definitely is not universal in the world. This is very much about more Western cultures where they've had longer periods of capitalist economic success. Um, And this is true more where in younger populations than in older populations. So I just want to make that clear so people don't think I'm painting with too broad a brush. But within that caveat, the following is very clear. Um, so first of all, remember, confusion is experience minus expectation. In other words, I'm, uh, I'm having this experience. I expected something different. When the experience is better than the expectation, it exceeds the expectation. I have this net positive confusion, that surprise, that's wonderment. Those are all really fun, right? Like you think you walk into an empty room and it's going to be empty and instead all your friends are there yelling surprise. That feels great. Confusing feels great. We're talking about negative agitation in the form of confusion. We're talking about you expect what your expectation is is greater than what you're experience, experiencing, okay? So the first thing is the expectation of work. I'd like to break this down into two things. So first, let's talk about 
the expectation of work, and then we can talk about the expectation of leaders. The expectation of work is, by and large, these five points. One is people are going to work expecting something different from the work experience than they even expected 20 years ago, definitely more than they expected 40 years ago. First is meaningful and purpose-driven work. Work is not a simple economic security feature. It's not something that we go and we give up a portion of our lives in order to have a paycheck because without a paycheck, we would starve or we would be at risk of the biological imperative, the security concern all human beings have. Even for people who may not have achieved full security, um, a sense of security in their economic lives, what is pretty obvious is what people believe about work is that it should be meaningful to them and purpose-driven. And another way this is often stated is it's values aligned. We don't tend to use that language because values are a pretty tricky subject to navigate um, from the science and psychologically. But it definitely, um, people expect their work to be meaningful, not just meaningful in twofolds. One is like what I do contributes to the group I'm a part of. A, and B, what I do solves problems for people I care about or makes the world a better place in general. So that's by and large meaning. And then purpose-driven is the business I'm a part of has some higher order priority than just survival. So just like a human's being, human being's basic highest order priority is like I got to survive and then humans can evolve beyond that. And they do all the time. People join the military and put their lives at risk in order to defend something they care deeply about. There become higher order sorts of beliefs than just our survival. And human beings are really unique in this way. Protecting ourselves or protecting our kin, all human, all, most species have that. Um, human beings get into levels of meaning beyond that and levels of purpose. And so, so human beings are by and large saying, I expect my work have a higher order priority than the security imperative. I expect the business I'm working for to have a higher order priority than just profit and loss, just survival. So that's number one. Number two, I think the data indicates that people's expectations of management are going up, not down. So the data, especially from like Gallup, their engagement surveys over the last 20 plus years, the data shows pretty clearly people are continually disappointed by their manager. In some surveys, you see it like upwards of 85% of people don't believe they have a good manager. And I, don't th I think that the persistence of those bad numbers is not indicative of the fact that managers aren't getting better. It's that managers aren't getting better faster. In other words, I think management is getting better overall. If you took a look at what management was was and what we were talking about in management back in the 70s and 80s. I think we're much more sophisticated now. We have better tools, better thinking, better training. But the reality is the expectations have outpaced the experience. So confusion has frequently grown when it comes to the expectation of managers. And yet people do expect to have a good manager. Some people describe this as somebody who is really looking out for them. Other people say, you know, a la the Google experiment, somebody who's creating psychological safety for them. There's lots of ways this can be discussed and measured. And obviously, talentism has spent, you know, the last decade thinking deeply about this and building out all those models. But there is an expectation of having a good to great manager. 
Uh, third, people want to feel like they're building mastery towards a calling. And this is a, this is a really big one. Okay, so excellent article in The Atlantic. We should put it in the notes about um, how the world of work is changing and the author posits, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he posits that like we've entered the world of workism, that work, workism has replaced religion as the sort of cauldron and foundation of community and belief about potential and belief about togetherness. And the way the author describes that, and this is a pretty famous Jeff Bezos quote, is that like, People have moved from work to a career and from a career to a calling. And Jeff pretty famously said, look, if you can find your calling, very few people do. But if you can, like, you're going to skip and whistle to work every single day of your life. Pretty sure that wasn't true. Pretty sure that's never going to be true. But if you find, um, you find your calling, i.e. that deeply compulsive element of identity that you're willing to keep going and trying and trying, um, that obviously is something to be aspired for. And work is where you're going to find your calling. It used to be you just find it in the arts or you'd find it in your community or you'd find it in your family. Increasingly, it's work where you're going to find your uh, calling. Getting to a calling requires increasing mastery. It doesn't matter if you're calling if you're really bad at it. So in addition to being compulsive and something you see you, you can contribute, it's meaningful, and you can spend the rest of your life doing, you have to be getting better at it. And so we talk about building mastery towards a calling. People want to know that they are being invested in towards getting clarity towards what that calling is and towards getting better at what that calling does. Fourth, autonomy to express individual contribution. Another big one. Remember in the world of work, which, you know, in galactic terms or even in human history terms as the blink of an eye, maybe we could start it in 1850. Some would argue 1820. I would argue 1910. But regardless, it ain't a long time compared to like even the amount of time that nation states have been on earth or whatever. So work is a relatively new thing, this concept of work that we have. And it used to be that you went to work and the one thing you absolutely agreed to is to surrender your autonomy. If I go to work and you give me a paycheck, you can make me survive the most horrendous conditions. You can treat me both emotionally and bodily in an abusive way. You can make me do tasks or labor that are going to hurt or maybe even kill me. And you can continually remove my rights and my expression of my individuality from me. You can force me to wear a uniform. You can force me to show up at a certain time. You can force me to say certain things. This has always been true in labor. It's been especially true in societies or cultures that don't celebrate individuality. But what you're seeing the world over, but especially in places like the United States, is the belief or the expectation that I should have the autonomy to express my individual contribution, my individual, uh, my individual identity and contribution. You see this in lots of little ways, like I want to wear what I want to wear and I want to work from where I want to work, but also in I want to have a role in defining my job. I want a role in defining the culture. I want a role in defining um, what my manager can and cannot make me do. 
the hierarchical nature of the modern labor force is at odds with this element of expectation of work, of the autonomy to express individual contribution and identity. And finally, meaningful relationships. And this is, <laughs> so uh, Robert Putnam wrote this great book called Bowling Alone. I highly encourage anybody to read it. And basically what he was talking is he identified this term of social capital, or maybe he was taking it from somebody else. But he said, look, we got financial capital, we got human capital, but we also have social capital. And social capital is by and large built by the institutions where we go to form meaningful relationships. And it turned out in the 50s, that was typically a bowling league for a lot of people. A lot of people belong to bowling leagues. And that's where they met their friends. And that's where they had their meaningful relationships. And, you know, I'd like to think I'm not that old. I'm 58, but I belonged to a bowling league when I was growing up. That's where my best friend and I went. That's where all our friends went. I get it. Bowling was cool. Not so much for me anymore. But back then, that was really the community. Like that was how I got identity was in this bowling, in these sorts of institutions, the... um the YMCA institutions I belong to, the bowling leagues, those kinds of things. What Putnam was tracing is that the membership and participation in those kinds of institutions has dropped dramatically. And it continues to drop now. Human beings have not, have not dropped their desire for meaningful relationships. Human beings have transferred that desire onto the workplace. Because as they spend more and more time at work, as they get more and more meaning from work, they're going to see more and more of their relationships develop at work. And so they're going to expect to have meaningful relationships with other people. They're going to expect to have meaningful relationships with their managers and their leaders. These five things, the meaning and purpose-driven nature of work, the great managers helping me be great, building mastery towards a calling, autonomy to express individual identity and contribution, and meaningful relationships, I think this is really the basis of the expectation of work in the world today. All right, Jeff, thank you for walking us through this really robust picture of how has talent's expectation of work changed over time? So that mental map that they're bringing to the workplace that is the basis of how they expect to survive and to thrive, that biological imperative inside all of us, that implicit goal that we're pursuing. So we have now this understanding of different expectations of the work context. I think you also have evidence that talent's expectation of their leaders, the people who sit at the top of their companies, the people that they look to for direction that those expectations have changed. So talk to us about changing expectations of leaders. Yeah, thank you, Angie, because we all come to, the, we all come to work with these mental models. This is, what we this is what we expect of the work experience. But all work happens within a hierarchy. I would maintain even if you're one of the few who works in, the, in a like, um, holacracy-driven organization, there are still people who get to make calls, not just committees. And those people that we want to follow, those people that we want to listen to, those people who we believe have power and authority, regardless of whether they have it or not, those people are people we call leaders. Um, and so we're coming to work with an expectation of what those leaders are. 
And just like the world of work has changed dramatically over a hundred years with regards to what our expectation of work is, like I'm going to go do menial, menial labor for um, substandard wages and maybe die at my job. Like that was a pretty universal expectation. And now that's an outlier expectation. Similarly, um, the expectations of leaders have changed dramatically over the last hundred years. And so let's just, let's quickly hit some of these. And I think we can talk in a later, a later podcast about some of these. So the first is, um, people clearly expect leaders to be emotionally present and emotionally mature. And it's to me, um, a little nonsensical that people expect this of leaders because as somebody who's worked with thousands of leaders, I can tell you um, leaders are just as emotionally unpresent and emotionally immature as most human beings. There is not some weird thing that happens to leaders as they go up the leadership chain that they become more emotionally present and emotionally mature. They are just as um, struggling and confused as the rest of us. And yet our expectation of them is that when we go to them and we say, hey, I'm really struggling, they're going to be there with that. They're going to listen to that. They're going to understand and seek to understand that. I Last week, uh, I must have heard from three different CEOs, one investor who's invested in over 200 companies and two CEOs, this basic phrase, which is, my employees expect me to be their therapist. And they were all really struggling with that because they're like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not even close. And I'm definitely not trained to be one. And I'm super confused by why they expect that of me. But there is clearly a mental health crisis going on, in, at least in the United States. I would guess in most of the Western world, it's just more acute here. And that mental health crisis, the more that, that work has become the place people go to find meaning and meaningful relationships and build their mastery to their calling and all those things, the more they're going to bring their whole selves to the workplace and their whole selves right now are emotionally challenged and emotionally struggling. And it makes sense that they would turn to the leader and say, help me, help me make sense of this. So they expect emotional presence, and that's a heck of a lot bigger job than it used to be. And they expect emotional maturity. And that is, man, a leader's job is incredibly difficult. Things are always changing. They're always upside down. You're carrying this huge weight on your shoulder of your own volition, just to be clear, but it's still a weight. And and people are looking to you to be calm and well-reasoned and insightful in the midst of chaos. They expect you to be emotionally mature. It's, it used to be, you know, you could say they expect a parent figure. I'd say now they expect a grandparent figure. They expect someone who's actually going to be, have wisdom in place in that moment to be able to say, that's, you know, it's okay. I see the bigger picture. Here, let's talk through it. So emotionally present and emotionally mature, expectation of leader. Second is unique and compelling vision. As people sign up to give more of their identity to their work in their workplace, they want to join something that has a point of view about the future the work is trying to create. Now, this, this uh, connects to the thing I said above, um, which is meaningful and purpose-driven work. But that meaning and purpose flows through the articulation of the leader and their unique and compelling vision. So if I'm going to give up a piece of myself in order to be a part of this organization, I want to know you got big dreams and ambitions. 
I want to know those big dreams and ambitions are really meaningful, like they're going to make a dent in the universe, they're going to make a change. And so a unique and compelling vision is something that people are increasingly expecting from leaders. Third is they are clear-minded and they are excellent communicators. I put these two together. They're two different things, but they often go hand in hand. First of all, a, they, there is an expectation that a leader has thought deeper, seen farther, and thought more fundamentally about the things that matter to the business than anybody else there. And secondly, that even in times of crisis, they can distill those insights and that thinking and that view into, into communication that makes sense, that turns confusion into clarity. In many ways, what I'm saying here is we are expecting our leaders to be communicate, the chief, communi- uh, chief clarity officers of the business. They have to be good at clarity. Yes, they have to identify all the confusion and sort through all the noise and all the rubble. And then they have to be clear about what's important and unimportant and connect it to that big vision they've got. And then they have to tell you why it matters to them, what they evaluated, what they discarded, why they picked what they picked, what it means to them. They have to be vulnerable in that, but not too vulnerable. Too vulnerable means that they're probably weak and they probably can't handle it. Not vulnerable enough means that they're not authentic. We care about authenticity. So they need to be clear-minded and excellent communicators. Fourth, they need to be trusted. And let's face it, 60 years ago, if you did not trust your manager at IBM, tough shit. Like, who would, who would ever even think of that? First of all, the manager probably didn't have a huge amount of impact on your career because once you got on that lifelong career journey at IBM, you were going to step up that ladder and maybe break out, but mostly just like work the process. So the manager didn't have this outsized influence on you. Um, but second, like you were surrendering a lot of autonomy and a lot of things to go and get into the into the blue suit and the white shirt and the red tie. And so like, what did you care whether you're, you trusted your manager or not? You just said they were just another problem you had to deal with at work. But today, for a manager to be great, they have to be trusted. For a leader to be great, they have to be trusted. They have to be trusted along the dimensions of competence and intent, that they're good at their job, that they're going to succeed and therefore help everyone else succeed. And second, that they share the underlying values and agenda that I share, that I have. So along competence and intent, trust is a major element. And finally, on that intent element, again, to loop back to this meaningful and purpose-driven work, does this leader represent my values? And this is a huge issue, and I want to address it in a future podcast. I'm getting a lot of questions over the last three, four months, even though it's been a much longer issue than that. Like, how do I, I as a CEO, especially an entrepreneurial founder, a startup CEO, I don't give a darn about politics. All I care about is making my company successful. And yet I'm getting pulled into politics constantly. Well, yeah, because people have a differing expectation of their leaders. Their leaders are the personification of what they believe their values to be. Whether their values are really that or not, I'm not here to argue. That's They are looking for someone who represents their values, represents what they believe they care in, and validates that that's the right value set to have. 
not just represents it, but validates it. And this is a huge problem for for leaders because the last thing you want to do is stand up there and take a stance on a political issue that, by definition, reduces your market share, reduces your total available market, reduces talent's, um, talent's commitment to you. It's like all economically fraught, and yet people do expect their leaders to have these stances and to represent their values and to validate those values. Jeff, I think that uh, that's very helpful, and I, I would guess that there are um, there are leaders of organizations right now who are sort of uh, feeling heard and seen because they are on the the receiving end of these expectations and grappling with how to fulfill them. So let's let's talk about what it's actually like for somebody showing up at work every day with these expectations of their work environment. And these expectations of the leaders who helm their organizations, uh, do they come to work and, and by and large experience these expectations as getting fulfilled? So their, their mental maps of how they navigate the work environment, are, those, are they serving them? Is it working? Or um, are you seeing what talentism would call confusion? That moment when the implicit or explicit expectation you have of your environment and the people around you gets violated. The expectations of work and the expectations of leaders have evolved far faster than the experience of talent, labor, and workers. Far faster. And so what you see in the data, especially like the most recent Gallup engagement data, where once again, disengagement, active disengagement is starting to climb, what we call the quiet insurrection. What you see in that data is people are saying, um, I, here's what I experience at work. I have a bad manager. I don't trust them. I don't think that they create safety. I don't think they care about what I care about. By the way, I've coached a lot of those managers. They feel the same way about their CEO. And I've coached a lot of those CEOs, and those CEOs are completely bum-fuzzled about what to do about this because they're trying to do the best job they can. But what talent is saying is, I'm getting bad management. Second thing is you see this in a lot of studies, broad studies like um, uh, Pinkinenny's, I'm sorry, I can't remember that work, but where he really made the case that wealth is valued now more than work. Wealth is more valuable than work and wealth is valued more than work. Most people we know in the United States, if they had a sudden and I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but if they had an unexpected expense, some people say $400, some say $2,000, but an unexpected expense, they couldn't, they couldn't deal with it. They wouldn't have the capital or credit available to be able to deal with that. And so human beings don't evaluate. We, as human beings, we don't evaluate whether things are going well for us based on an absolute measure or based on the past. We evaluate whether things are going well for us based on others. Human beings, if you grew up in a if you grew up in a poor household, a household that was economically challenged, and everyone around you was economically challenged, and you didn't have social media and you didn't have books and you didn't know any different, most people report like, yeah, that's that's what life was like. 
And it wasn't until I went to the city or did something else where I was like, oh, that's what's possible. But now in today's world, people on social media can compare to others all the time. And I'm not going to go into a screed about social media, but let's just say social media is a confusion machine. It quite literally has been designed from the ground up to cause foment and capitalize upon confusion. And so um, people are looking around and they're saying, wow, there's a lot of people who are really wealthy and um, and I'm barely getting by. That's not right. That's not fair. The third is people are seeing that they're encouraged to transactional relationships. Businesses rarely, especially since the pandemic, but they rarely engage in helping point-to-point relationships develop. What I see from a lot of founders, a lot of CEOs, is hub-and-spoke models of relationship development. Hey, you, person reporting to me, form the most valuable relationship with me, not with the people next to you. We have lots of data that shows that people, even when they trust their leaders, they don't trust their coworkers. And I believe that actually is because of the way the leaders lead and the managers manage. But they're seeing more transactional relationships around them. Fourth, they're seeing that there's more demand for fewer rewards. I want you to work harder. I want you to work longer. And your upward mobility is going to be limited. Now I'll put this constraint on it. I'll put that constraint on it. If you're not working from the office four days a week, five days a week, if you're not in here on Saturdays, if you don't do these things and more, whatever the manager comes up with tomorrow, they read some new book, they listen to a guy like me and they walk in and they say, now the expectation is this. What it looks like is the demand is for more, but frankly, paychecks have not been growing, economic security abounds, abounds. And then finally, what you're seeing is a feeling of disposability that the human being is the most disposable element of the corporate ecosystem. Human labor is more disposable than shareholders, suppliers, even community members. It's more disposable than anything. It's the thing that you're fastest to hire and the fastest to hire a fire. Um, And so they're experiencing, they have these big expectations And what they're experiencing is this bad management, wealth's more important than my work, transactional relationships, you want more for less, and you treat me as if I'm disposable. So the the thing I find really valuable that you do, Jeff, is um, you read widely and you have myriad experiences with, at this point, hundreds of organizations, thousands of leaders. And I think all of us listening to you could probably relate to some of what you're saying, either from sort of the worker, the talent perspective, the manager perspective, maybe the founder CEO perspective. But the way that you're summarizing these themes, I think is highlighting this inevitable, fairly grim conclusion. If the expectation of talent and workers is outpacing the ability of management and leaders to deliver, what happens? What comes next? And for those well-intentioned leaders that you coach personally, that we coach personally, what can they be doing differently to adapt to these expectations uh, if that's the path to go down? Yeah, it's a great great question because, you know, for all of us, a talentism, the meaning of our work is to help build 
and and deliver a system that unleashes human potential. And the one thing you can say about confused people when they're in that state of confusion, they are definitely not unleashing their potential. We've all experienced this. We've all experienced us in our most confused. And I doubt any of us would say that's when we were at our best. So in order to for us to deliver on our promise and our commitment to our community and to our customers, as well as to the world and the promise of the world, this thing of like, we're going to develop and deliver a system that unleashes human potential. We have to deal really effectively with this confusion problem. We have to have insights into why it exists. We have to identify what's causing it. And then we have to deliver practical tools, methods, and services and products that enable you to deal effectively with the confusion. And what we're trying to do is help you move, take that confusion, which is endemic and which you cannot get rid of. You can, you can do certain things to minimize it over time, but you can't get rid of it. Just part of the human experience and turn that confusion into fuel, into clarity, because clarity is the fundamental productivity driver. Clarity is the fundamental economic driver. When you look at what changes nations, what you look at what changes economies, it's productivity. It's not credit cycles, all those things. Those are, those are super important, but they're secondary to productivity trends over time. And what we maintain is the next frontier is productivity because all the AI and tech stuff that we feel like, hey, listen, you got a little bit of confusion and a lot of upside. Now you're seeing that flip to a lot of confusion with a little upside. And so the costs will get heavier for a lot of the um, technological advancement. And we're still left with a population that's very confused. And so we want to be able to take that confusion and turn it into clarity. If you're a leader and you're facing this issue, what do you do about it? Well, the first thing, and this seems so counterintuitive and probably is worth a much longer conversation at some point, but we believe it has to start with the leader accepting responsibility for who they are and how they feel. And, you know, so I've talked about science and I've talked about economic studies and I've talked about this author and that author. And then to get to this basic like humanist truism of, okay, a leader has to start with what they're, what they're like and how they feel. Yeah, because regardless of whether you think it's true or not, you are the person that's likely building the system that's causing confusion. If the people, if you're confused, we've just been through this over multiple podcasts. If you're confused, it's likely because you've built the system from a place of blind spot and personal ignorance that is now making you confused. And if others are confused, it's because you built a system that confuses them. Now, of course, there's many things in the broader world that you can't control. I'm not trying to say that you're in control of the macroeconomic environment. You're in control of social unrest, racism, sexism. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is that within the boundaries of your business, you as a leader are responsible for creating the systems that either generate um, confusion and leave it to rot into certainty or find confusion and turn it productively into clarity. And you can't do that if you can't figure out who you are, what you care about, and how you're feeling right now. And so the first step has got to be, as a leader, you got to work with somebody who's going to help you ferret that out. Could be a coach, could be a mentor, could be a board member. Make sure you trust them, make sure they're good at it, and make sure that you have plenty of space to figure it out. 
but you're not going to be able to design a better system, a system that turns confusion into clarity if you don't deal with your own confusion first. So that's number one. Number two is you got to check off on your goals. In the midst of talent having this sort of bigger and bigger confusion gap, more and more pressure is going to be on you as a leader to turn inward, to get more confused yourself, to possibly let that degrade into certainty, to become anxious at best, angry at worst, to lash out, to believe everybody's against you. These are things we see thousands and thousands of times every year. It's not unusual. It's pretty common. The the practical way to deal with that after starting with you and sort of checking in on that feeling why it exists and working with somebody to help you understand what that's all about is you got to check off on your goals. Point yourself towards the horizon, not just to the inner experience. Third is you got to design based on what you think you're good at. We call this the big four hypothesis. Again, that's another thing we can cover at another moment. But you actually have to build the system knowledgeably and purposefully. You can't just let it sort of steamroll you. You can't just sort of like build up over time and one day you're sitting in the middle of a mess and going, oh, geez, what the heck happened? Every day you're making a ton of decisions that are building that system that are building that system that's confusing you and confusing others. You're deciding who to hire, who to fire, who to praise, who to demote, who to ignore, what, stra- what strategic inputs to give, what to invest behind. These are all things that build that system. And so you actually have to start to purposefully design that as opposed to just sleepwalk your way through it. You have to take knowledgeable guesses, informed guesses, hypotheses, about what the future needs and what you're good at and design for that. The fourth thing you got to do is you have to measure in small loops. I see people do this all the time. They set a year plan and they say, okay, like we're going to go run at this hard for a year. And then at the end of the year, we'll check in. For most fast growth companies, the end of the year is too long. By the time you form the hypothesis, do the design work, get into launching the plan, then gather the results at the end of the year and make sense of them and decide what to do about them. That's like 18 months. 18 months is a lifetime. You should be running in six week, four to six week cycles, which means your plan, your plan actually should be articulated in those sprints as opposed to the big ideas and the big plans. The sprints should play, um, build up into achieving your goals. But the sprints enable you to test hypotheses in much smaller units. We suggest four to six week units. And then you want to, as you're learning, make sure you're getting in sync with everyone. As you're learning, you take the time and the effort to make sure you're sharing what you're learning, make sure they understand it, and make sure they're aligned with it, what we call three-level sync. All the time, so you go through one of those learning loops and you want to actually talk about what you learned and what's going to be different as a result. And then the sixth step is repeat this forever. The moment you stop repeating the cycle is the moment you stop learning. It's the moment you stop turning confusion into clarity. So you repeat this cycle forever until you get off the train. Because repeating this cycle is the thing that actually enables you to build a system that unleashes your best, 
and to build a system that is going to unleash the potential of the people in your organization. I think what's powerful about what you just shared, Jeff, is um, it's not so, what you're advising is not something you do once. Uh, it's not, oh, we'll respond to our engagement survey results by, you know, having uh, more in-person interactions or something like that. What you're describing, and, and this is both challenging, but it also might feel freeing to people, is about a way of being as a leader. One that's rooted in self-awareness, self-acceptance, personal responsibility, uh, one where there is support to reorient to goals and to get out of reaction mode, one where the system that leaders are implicitly and explicitly creating for themselves to succeed and for their teams to succeed is really cognizant of who they each are as individuals and not based on some generic hypothesis of how management is done, but really accounts for what each one is like what's meaningful to them, what they're compulsive about. And then I'm also hearing you say that the way to make all of this work is to be um, really focused on, is it creating the wins? And if it's not, what are we learning? And how do we ad adapt based on that learning? And how do we not just do this as individuals, but how do we get and stay in sync with the people around us and really orient to team? And so the things that you've described, they don't feel like uh, a, you know, a playbook that you implement once um, and, and you know, narrowly applicable to certain types of business contexts. This kind of feels like it's for everybody to do always. Yes. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... It's not a way of working, just to be clear. I don't think it's a way of working. I think it's a way of being. I think it's a way of being openly curious and confronting an ever more complex and chaotic world. And I think it's a way of discovering who we are and unleashing that in service of our higher order goals of getting beyond survival and getting beyond the fight, flight, or freeze of everyday existence and getting into who could we be? What could we contribute to the world? What could we contribute to our work? And how do we make the world a better place so that the people who come after us will benefit from that? I think it's more than just a management philosophy. I think it's a way that you navigate the world and learn. But I think it's especially important to managers and leaders today because really their job is just turning confusion into clarity. When you boil it all down, the market's a confused place and they bring the clarity of a new product. The customer's a confused person and they bring the clarity of a sale. The employee's a confused person, they bring the clarity of purpose, mastery, and autonomy. All the community is the community is confused and the leader brings the clarity of what is potential for us all. I just think turning confusion into clarity is at the very core of what great managers and great leaders have to do. And the ones that don't do that are going to, are probably destined to have companies that don't live up to their potential. That's great. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I, both for sort of the very broad view um, of, of um, how talent's expectations are changing, how that relates to increased confusion in the workplace 
how that links back to our understanding of, of what confusion is and, and why uh, it is to be expected. Um, and then specifically and practically what leaders can do to seize this mounting and increasing confusion as an opportunity to create more clarity and thereby more productivity. Um, And this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Angie. Always a pleasure.